Hey, would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives. I'm thankful for your mercy and your grace and how I see that played out. And, and even just hearing the stories of people that were here early and what you're doing. Uh, God, I thank you for how you are affirming your grace in Melissa's life to grow her. That she doesn't need to prove herself to you, but she is loved by you. Thank you for that. Thank you for community. Uh, thank you for people this week that, that were prayed for because they went to community group and, and they shared something that was vulnerable and, and, and humble, whether it was confessional or whether it was a need, and they were prayed for. God, thank you for that. God, I pray for, for two brothers. I pray for Pastor Kyle and Pastor Roger. Uh, Lord, I pray for, for them that you would help them as they're getting over um, some kind of sickness right now, I pray that you'd be with them. Watch over them, care for them. Uh, Lord, I, I pray for, for this morning, I pray for humility. The words that you share surprise your people. And so God, if we're surprised by something that you're telling us, God, a new way that we see how to apply your words this morning let us not dismiss it, but let us take it to heart sincerely. God, I pray for, I pray for one last thing. God, I pray for, um, Lord, those hundred boxes that are being filled. I pray for the kids that they're going to. That this Christmas, that they would feel loved by receiving a Christmas gift, but that they would be able to enter into what we celebrate Christmas here as the arrival of Jesus, your only begotten Son, the greatest gift that we have ever received. God, I pray for that to happen. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, the holidays upon us, as I was studying Matthew 25, the end here, we've been talking about arrivals. Talking about faithfulness, faith, discernment. To the end. And when we talk about to the end, what we're talking about is all the way to Jesus' second coming. Right, as we're about to celebrate the Advent, Jesus' first coming, the incarnation, coming as a baby. And here we are in Matthew talking about Jesus' second coming. What he wants his disciples to know, what they need to know for their faith to last, to hear the commendation of their Lord and Savior. We've heard about a number of arrivals. I thought about my own uh, arrival. I talked with, with my parents this week. And uh, I'm taking my, my family to Kansas City to visit my parents. And uh, I gave my dad a little shock. I said, now when we come in Sunday night, when we pull in, and my dad said, whoa, 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 you're coming Monday. And I said, no, 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 dad, I'm coming Sunday. I told you I'm coming Sunday. He said, no, no, you're coming Monday. I said, well, you can have it on the calendar that I'm coming Monday, but we will be there Sunday night. I don't know if you've ever had those conversations, right? And, uh, and what threw my dad and I off was he didn't know. He was anticipating one thing, and I told him another thing. We have heard four stories about arrivals, and we've seen some common themes in all of them. The arrival of a thief in the middle of the night. Ooh, that's unexpected, right? The arrival, and bad, the arrival of a master to his servants, right? They didn't know when. He was coming, 
And because of that, it led some of the servants to be unfaithful and unloyal to their master because they thought he's not coming for a long time. And then the arrival of a groom, which came at quite honestly an inconvenient time when the groom shouldn't have come in the middle of the night. It's not the time to start a wedding feast or the arrival of an employer who's come to here to give a review of what his employees have done. All of these are pointing to one return. They're all fictional stories. We call them parables that Jesus uses to help us to think outside of the box, but to think about the reality of one true and real coming, Jesus' second coming. He wants people to understand it, that his return should motivate our hearts and apply us in faithfulness to serve his kingdom. So right here, we're going to get a little bit of, I wouldn't even call it a parable, because unlike the four that we just heard, we're going to hear an image, an image, but it is all about the true and real return of Jesus, which is something we as as gospel-believing Christians don't joke around about, that Jesus is coming back. He has a, a real physical return that we are looking forward to and that we anticipate and that we do not assume that we know when he's coming. But it leads us to discernment and faithfulness about how we should live today. And so we get this story. Go ahead, go ahead and look at this with me, starting in verse 31. A powerful arrival. A powerful arrival. Verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So you get the contrast, how Jesus came at first as a baby in the flesh, truly human, just like you and me are truly human. Jesus is truly human. Why? Because he came in the flesh, born of Mary. One way I I like to put this is that Jesus' glory was cloaked in a humble birth. It's not how we would expect the Son of God to come. But Jesus talks about this second coming as a glorious one, a powerful one, one that cannot be ignored. His first, his first coming, his birth, was ignored by so many different people. It was even disrespected by some, Herod in particular. And the people that knew about it were few and far between, shepherds and and wise men. But right here, the powerful arrival has two signs. The one is this, the angels with him, the host of heaven with him. And what are the angels doing? God's created beings. As they are seen by us, they are revealing just how much authority Jesus has. Just how much authority he has that he commands an army of angels to do his bidding. And the second aspect that we see, the sign is this, Jesus sitting on his throne. Now there's a question about a timeline of this, about how much is Jesus ruling and when is he ruling, how much. But right here what we see is that Jesus is going to get his way. As Jesus the king sits on his throne to rule, You and I as Americans need to see some powers that we've separated coming together in an amazing way. 
that Jesus is not only the king to rule over us, but he is also judge. What do we do as Americans? We separate those powers, right? We want to separate, limit those powers. We as good Americans, we do that, right? But Jesus sitting on the throne, we are going to see a picture of him both as king and judge. That he writes the law and then he also enforces the law. There's a picture, and if you want to look this up, Zechariah 14.5 talks about this. Where is this conversation taking place? It's happening on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem on a hill. And there was a prophecy that came from the mouth of Zechariah in chapter 14, verse 5. And, and it had to do with the Son of Man who was going to come to both rescue but also to judge, to bring salvation but to also bring condemnation. And here's what the dynamic was. You know, Israel was being disciplined, but the promise was this. I'm going to come, and sitting on the Mount of Olives, I will speak judgment to your enemies, right? Judgment. That will also be your salvation. I will rescue you through the way of the Mount of Olives. It's an amazing prophetic picture. It was awesome. Right here, Jesus is speaking to his return from the Mount of Olives. And he's sharing about how glorious his return is going to be. I love it. My heart's encouraged to hear about Jesus getting his way. But, but look at the second movement, sweeping judgment. Sweeping judgment. That's the picture in Zechariah, and that's where Jesus goes as he talks about his return. Before him, before the Son of Man, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right but the goats on the left. Why does Jesus ascend to this throne? It's, it's for judgment. It's for Jesus to clarify and to decree a judgment. Here we get this picture, and, and since I didn't grow up on a farm, maybe you did, I don't really understand this, but, but the commentators that I read said, this is something that first century Palestinians would have known. The Israelites, they get this. That a lot of times, shepherds would graze goats and sheep together. They would do that many times. Sometimes they'd separate them, but a lot of times together. But they would almost always separate the sheep and the goats at night. And just think about it, right? Sheep, sheep grow, this, grow this nice, warm wool. Maybe you, you're asking for wool gloves or a wool hat for Christmas. Why? Because wool keeps you warm. And so the sheep would be warm at night, but the goats needed more shelter to keep them warm. They had to be cared for differently. And so the shepherds would do, they would just, they would separate one from the other. Jesus has already used this image as Matthew's recorded. But right here, why does Jesus come? Because he is going to make a judgment, a universal judgment. And here's what you and I can, can expect from it that there is no one in this room. In fact, there is no one that you are going to encounter in this world who is not going to experience this kind of a judgment by Jesus, to be separated by him, one to the right and one to the left. This is an experience that is in the future, but it is going to happen to every person 
that we will stand before our judge and our king. It's a universal judgment. Sometimes Christians are labeled judgmental for for passages like this in the Bible. And, And here's what I want to share with you, that you and I do not become more loving or caring by denying this kind of judgment. That Jesus separates one from another, and we'll get to exactly how and why he's doing this. But you and I need to affirm this judgment and a couple things about it. That this is a sure and universal future judgment. This is a future judgment. Jesus is not separating sheep and goats right now. Jesus has not come to judge in this moment. It hasn't happened. But you and I, as Christians that believe in the authority of the Bible, we believe this. We take Jesus at his word. And so with sober mind, we pray, even right now, pray with me, God, that you would bring revival in people's hearts, in this community and around the world. God, that we wouldn't just send boxes around the world, but that we would see your spirit move, that people would turn to Jesus, believing that that he is going to be gracious to them, that he'll rescue them. And God, I pray for people even in this room that that maybe, maybe have fear and no assurance of this coming judgment, that they would find hope in Jesus. That there is grace as Jesus comes humbly to take up his own cross to die as our substitute. Lord, that you would be gracious to us today and on this day to come when you will judge everyone. God, that's what we pray with a sober mind to this end. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. This division is going to happen. And one thing that I want to note is at the right is this place of honor and power. And so this is meant to be an encouragement to Christians. This is meant to be an encouragement to Jesus' followers. That when I come, I am going to place you on my right. A place of honor and a place of power. That it will be great blessing at my coming for you. That's obvious and and Jesus' disciples accepted that. And it it leads us to this third movement, that there is blessing for serving Jesus. There's blessing, this right side. Now there's the picture, right? A king would put those he wanted to honor and give power at his right side in particular. So what does that look like? Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. Prepared for you, From the foundation of the world. See, right here, Jesus talks about this blessing. It's a gift that's been prepared even before the world was formed. It's an inheritance. What does that mean? That it is a gift given. It is graciously given. He's saying at this judgment that it will be given. What what is that? It's planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus used these words and John recorded them in the high priestly prayer. When the son is talking to the father, he's pouring out his heart to the father. What does that mean? He's praying. And what does Jesus pray for? 
that they would see His glory, the glory that He has experienced with His Father before the foundation of the world. And what is that glory? It's the love of the Father. Jesus has experienced the love of the Father. And what does He desperately want for His disciples? That they will enter into that love, that they would experience it fully and completely unveiled, unrestricted, that Jesus is bringing the, the people, the citizens of his kingdom into what? A full consummation of the love of God. What does that look like? What is that experience? Now, here's, here's the truth. There's a surprise. Jesus gives a reason. He gives a reason why these people are on his right. Essentially, he says, because you cared for me with a warm, committed, sacrificial love. Jesus says, that's what I saw from you. That's how you treated me. That's what he says. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus is saying, you stooped down and fed me, Jesus. I was, I was having a hard time, and you encouraged me. I, I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was, I was in prison. Do you remember that? You remember when Jesus was in prison, you know, made the news? And you went and visited him. That, that in 2020, Jesus had COVID, and you cared for him. Now, this is a surprise. It's probably even a surprise how I put it to you. And in this parable, Jesus shares the real surprise that people have. Look at verse 37. The righteous will answer, Lord, when? When did we see this? And what they're testifying to is, Jesus, I never saw you hungry or thirsty. <laughs> Jesus, I never saw you in prison. Why did you go to prison, Jesus? Tell me. I, really, I want to know more about that. You were sick and I helped you? You were naked and I clothed you? The people on the, on the right, the people that Jesus is honoring, that, that he is, is recognizing, are surprised. It's the big question. When? I don't understand. Do you see the tension in the story? Jesus is very specific about what they did for him, and they don't have a clue when they did that. They're surprised. They're surprised that they cared for Jesus without even knowing it. Why? Why is that? What's the big reveal? Because according to Jesus, according to Jesus, 
Serving mine is serving me. Those are Jesus' words paraphrased. If you serve mine, then you are serving me. Look at verse 38. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Okay, the king, right? And here's where I want to clarify something. We've talked about four parables, four fictional stories, and they're all pointing to Jesus' return And today, we're not talking about a parable. The closest you get to a parable or a description or a metaphor are the sheep and the goats. But Jesus was talking about real people that he was referring to as sheep and goats. And when it says the king right here, this is not a fictional kingdom. This is Jesus referring to himself as the son of man and the king. And he is talking about real judgment. What he really thinks I mean, this has been encouraging us to faithfulness, but now we get to understand and discern what is that faithfulness. Jesus is saying, I'm looking for you to love my people just like you would love me. Because when you love my people, you are actually loving me. Jesus is saying love for the church. He's not just saying love for people. He's he's not saying love for men and love for women that bear my image. Jesus is talking about a specific kind of love, an ecclesiological kind of love. It's love for people that are followers of Jesus. And when Jesus says, you cared for me when I was down and out, he's saying it because even, even one of the least of these brothers or sisters in our, in our eyes, not because they're insignificant to Jesus, this parable or this story, actually, this judgment helps us to understand that the littlest, the littlest person, in quotes, seemingly most insignificant person matters to Jesus. That he is rewarding, and as he's rewarding those with this place at his right, right side, He highlights specifically how you treated those that belong to me with love. So one thing that he highlights, caring for them. Okay, but there's a contrast and we can't leave it out. This isn't a completely loving story that Jesus tells about what the future is going to be like. Because the fourth movement is this. It's a judgment that Jesus speaks. It's a hard judgment for ignoring Jesus, for ignoring Jesus. I know that's something none of us would do. None of us would ignore Jesus, but listen to this story that Jesus tells. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, I need to say something. Maybe some of you, um, maybe some of you are listening online. You're like, I'm never gonna go to that church and listen to another message because Gabe denied the reality of hell three weeks in a row. <laughs> and, and the truth is, no, I, I didn't. I was very specific in what I said. As we hear these parables, these four parables, we hear judgment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, condemnation. That was all a fictional condemnation that was pointing us to a judgment that was to come. It was fictional, but what it was pointing to is real And this is the real judgment as Jesus slices it. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil 
and his angels. That's the real hell. Jesus' judgment. It's true. I can't deny it. Jesus speaks plainly about it. But here's the big question in the story. Why? I mean, why would they experience an eternity of judgment? Verse 42, because I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Jesus gives one of the clearest and most poignant descriptions of hell right here. And as he speaks with such clarity, the reason, the judgment that he gives is, I saw so much evidence lacking of the opportunities for you to love me, and you did not do it. You did not do it. That's enough evidence for me to say, you are on my left. You are a goat, so to speak, and I don't mean the greatest of all time. That there is real judgment that you will experience because the evidence was lacking that you loved me, my people. Now, um, I think we need to be clear about, about hell and, and what we mean by it. And there's one way I'd, I'd like to phrase it concisely. I'm borrowing somebody else's words here, but I think they're so good. They're worth mentioning. It's the question. It's a question that people are asking, and we need to be clear about what the Bible says, what God tells us. And the question, I think, is really clear when it's put like this. What happens after death to those not united to Jesus by faith? They will be cast out from God's presence into hell to be punished forever. It is sobering. What I like about that question and answer is this. It helps us understand it's not because... God wants to be mean to a certain person, but that God is just and right. That our only hope is this. To avoid being cast out of God's presence into hell, to be justly punished forever, to avoid that, the only hope that we have and the only reason that we are in hell is because we are sinners who are not united to Christ by faith. It's an encouragement to believe that God is gracious and merciful, but He is just. The only way that we enjoy His presence is by His mercy and His grace. And it is awesome and spectacular for Jesus to sit on his throne, for his angels to serve him, and for us to be gathered there in a good way 
Just like we gathered this morning and sang songs about Jesus, what he's done for us. It wasn't sorrow, but joy. It was a good thing. That hell is real, it's terrible, and it's the absence of God's goodness and grace and mercy that it means never experiencing his presence again. It's awful and terrible and real. But here's what's shocking. That, that it's not so much that the people on the left heard condemnation, it was why. Because how do they answer Jesus? Then they'll also say, to Jesus, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. Then we did not serve you, right? They're confused by that. Just like the people that loved Jesus in those hard places. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What is Jesus saying? Not serving Mine is not serving me. You disregarded me. You ignored me. You abandoned me when I was in these hard places. Now again, Jesus is not talking about people in general. He is talking about the littlest, the seemingly most insignificant people that belong in his kingdom. So here's my question for us. Both groups are surprised Jesus is looking for evidence that you loved me and cared for me. Have you considered what his words will be towards you on this day? And will you be surprised? Will you be surprised like these people? I want to share a story about a man who lived running down a path to hell. He was headed towards judgment. There's no doubt about it. He was in a major city, Jerusalem, arresting people that were associating with the name of Jesus. And then he got authority to go outside of Jerusalem and to go find these people that called themselves Christians. He literally raised support to go make their life miserable, to live on the mission of persecution, to hate, persecute, even execute Christians until he meets Jesus. Jesus had ascended to heaven. He'd left earth, didn't appear again, right, until Acts 9.3 it says this, now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, now understand this. Jesus ascended to heaven. This is after he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's gone from the earth, and yet he is very specific and clear about his words. He tells Saul, who's traveling around and, and, and throwing Christians in prison, and he says this, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No, no, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, Saul, 
Why are you, Jesus, who's ascended to heaven, says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do you hear in those words? Jesus takes it very personally that Saul is making life tough for his church. He takes it as an offense against himself. Have you and I considered what Saul was shocked with that day? Do you think Saul thought, you know, that Jesus, who they say ascended into heaven, that he's going to take it personally, that I'm making life tough for these folks here in Jerusalem and beyond? I don't think he did, but it caught up with him that not serving Jesus, persecuting Jesus' people is like persecuting Jesus. I need to hear that. We need to hear that. That you and I haven't slandered or gossiped about our brothers or sisters in Christ. We have slandered and gossiped about Jesus himself. that we didn't just exclude our brothers or sisters, we excluded Jesus. We didn't just close our hearts to people at our church. We closed our hearts to Jesus. And it's a big deal to Jesus. Wow, this is a hard word. The final verdict, look look at this. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's not figurative language. That is literal language. Jesus recognizes that what you and I do for our brothers and sisters is done for Jesus himself. Wow. Do you see it? Are Are your eyes open just like Paul's? The things that I did to those Christians, I was actually doing to Jesus. Good or bad. What we ignore and neglect or what we meet and care for. Now in application, we we need to understand this, that Jesus is not talking about people in general. He's not talking about just people all over the world. I want you to consider as we apply this, maybe you're feeling a lot of guilt, like, hey Gabe, there are a lot of needs that the church has around the world, and I'm supposed to bear all of them? I'm just saying, no, no. There's, there's a close application of this. I think of, I think of three things. So, so if someone's in my church, I believe Jesus wants us to meet that need. Now, now someone might be a Christian, but they're not a part of, that ch- of our church. I'd say, hey, you know what, I'd love to consider our hearts should be open to that. But specifically, people that are walking with us in community, whether they're a member or not, that the needs that Jesus talks about, our hearts have to be open to them. And if we close our heart to caring for our brother and sister in some of the most basic ways that Jesus talks about, which we'll get into it more, but encouragement and some basic needs of life, that you and I have to be there for each other on those. Jesus sees what we do and don't do. 
but especially I want you to think about your community group or your Bible study, the people that God has brought you closer with, even within the church, you're going to know those needs better than maybe everybody in the church. We need to consider our brothers with an open heart. We need to think and pray for our sisters with a heart full of love. Because Jesus is encouraging it. Jesus is expecting it. That's what he shares with his parable right here. Now here's a question. Here's a question. Is Jesus saying that these Christians, these disciples, did these works, and it's these works that got them into heaven? And we better get about doing these works or else we're not going to heaven. No, no, right? And, and I hope you caught that. The only reason why anybody goes to hell is because they are not united to Christ by faith. It is about believing Jesus, that he is both the authority and the grace to forgive someone, the grace to utter a sentence like enter into eternal life, that Jesus is the Redeemer what Jesus is doing in this parable is he is helping to open our eyes to the evidence of our faith and what is one of the greatest signs, maybe top three signs of the evidence of our faith in Jesus. It's how we treat Jesus' people. That Jesus sees him, his people as himself, that he is the head and we are the body. And how we treat the body will be noticed by the head. That's what Jesus means right here. It's like this. I'm going to use this illustration. You and I cannot become a part of the body of Jesus. We cannot enter into eternity by just doing more for the church or loving the church more. No, we can't. Because th those things are evidences, but they are not the cause. It's Jesus' grace that he dies on the cross. So think about this. Think about evidence. Because we've got, we've got great examples of this. Think about like a driver's license or a passport. So I happen to be an American. All right, um, I'm an American, and, and not everybody in here is, so I want you to understand this story. Some of you have become Americans. Um, I became an American just because I was born here, because my mother gave birth to me in misery. Did you catch that? In Missouri, you heard that, right? In, in Missouri, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and so I was automatically a citizen because I was born here. Now, I, I wanted to travel outside the country this year, and so what did I apply for? A passport, a U.S. passport. And so I did that. I did that. And, and I left the country, and I had this passport. I had to show it a number of times to prove that I was a part of the U.S., that I could legally travel. Here's my question. Did that passport that I got here in 2021 did it make me a citizen of the U.S. in 2021? It didn't, did it? Okay, it's evidence. It's what I can use to prove I'm a United States citizen. It's evidence. It's not the cause. Now think about this. I'm a U.S. citizen, so what if I just decided to go travel the world? I just forget about that evidence. It doesn't matter how far would I get? Not very far. Not very far at all. Right? Best case scenario, I get sent back to the U.S. immediately. I don't get to enter any country. 
Worst case scenario, I get detained in some other country, right? You know that's how it would go. And it would be such a headache. Now, now, I'm a U.S. citizen, whether I travel with a passport or not, right? Right? And we can say, hey, I'm a Christian because I confessed my sin and I turned in repentance to Jesus. But forget about a heart of love that's evidence of my faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter because it's not why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because Jesus forgives me because of his grace. It's as foolish as trying to travel around the world without a passport. It's the assurance to you and to me that we are united to Jesus by faith because of the evidence of our love for those who belong to Jesus, that we're not burning down our own house, that we have kindness and generosity, that we have compassion, that we're willing to sacrifice, to humbly love other people that are, are Christians, that are in our church, that are in close community with us, that serve Jesus as well. It matters. So here's my question. Will you be surprised by what Jesus has to say about the evidence of your life on this day? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a confrontational word. I'm so thankful for a confrontational word that this this soon-to-come future judgment that all of us will be a part of on the right or on the left, eternal life or hell, that none of us get to say, "Uh, uh, I'll pass. I'm going to skip this class. None of us get to do that. But you have loved us to share this word before that day. And so, God, I pray that you would grow us in your grace and mercy to say how we live matters. That union with Jesus transforms our life from one degree to the next, that we would mirror and reflect your character and your love. God, thank you for some of the most basic truths of sanctification that we learned. But God, most of all, I pray that you would help us to consider where is our heart at? Not in how... Not in how satisfied we are on a scale of 1 to 10 with our church, but on how much love we have in our heart for your church, big church, even beyond this local body. God, I pray that you would give us a heart check this week. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen.